This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it, for out of that well they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth. Now all the flocks would be gathered there, and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. And Jacob said to them, My brethren, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. So he said to them, Is he well? And they said, He is well. And look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. And he said, Look, it is still high day. It is not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and feed them. They said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together, and they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. And while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son. So she ran and told her father. Then it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, It must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve me with still another seven years. 
And Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. So he gave him his daughter Rachel as a wife also. And Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. And Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban still another seven years. This is the word of the Lord, and he blessed it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would prepare our hearts to receive it, even as it describes difficult and painful things in the history of your covenant people, the people of which we are a part. I pray that you would show forth your truth and even show forth the hope that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, family matters can be complicated. They can be difficult. Families are supposed to be the people who love and care for each other the most, and yet it can often be in families where some of the greatest treacheries and betrayals and acts of evil can be done. Now, in a certain way, it makes sense. Those who love us the most, those who are closest to us, are the ones that have the ability, because of their closeness, to harm us and hurt us the most. There's always going to be some degree of rivalry, potential for conflict within families, but sometimes the conflict gets particularly ugly, particularly acute. These problems can manifest quickly and brutally, for instance, in disputes over money and property and what happens in times of death and tragedy. Many families can be torn apart, many Family members can enter conflict so deep that they become estranged, they never speak again. People turn on each other, they go from the people who are supposed to love and care for each other to people who hate each other and want to deceive and defraud and destroy each other. We've already seen a lot of this in Genesis, particularly in recent episodes concerning the house of Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, and their two sons, Jacob and Esau. There has been a great deal of trouble and conflict and deception. Now, the worst of this so far has been at the hands of Jacob, who, on his mother's advice, deceived his father and swindled his brother out of birthright and blessings. Now, this treachery brings consequences. Jacob has been sent into exile because Esau wants him dead. He has to go away for a while. After all, such deep and intense conflict in families and such evil acts being done in families often does produce estrangement and separation. But now, on his journey, on his time in exile, Jacob is about to receive a taste of his own medicine. He has been a deceiver. He has enriched himself and benefited himself from deceiving his family. But now, at the hands of another member of his family, his uncle Laban, Jacob, will be deceived and defrauded. One of the tasks that Jacob was given on his journey, besides staying alive and not letting Esau kill him in a vengeful rage, was to go and find a wife from the house of his mother's family. 
And through this, Jacob will learn a very hard lesson. He will learn what it is like to be on the receiving end of this kind of familial deception. We'll look at this text this morning in three points. First, we see success in verses 1 through 12. It seems that Jacob very quickly and easily, it seems, succeeds at the task of finding a wife that he has been given to do. It almost seems too fast and too easy. And then second, we see subversion in verses 13 through 27. It seemed too fast and too easy because it was. Jacob's uncle and father-in-law Laban takes Jacob for a ride. He tricks him and deceives him out of his wife, his work, and many years of his life. And third, we see a struggle in verses 28 through 30. Laban's deception produces a situation in Jacob's house that will produce much more sorrow and difficulty in the coming years. So success, subversion, and struggle, these are our points for this morning. First, we look at success in verses 1 through 12. Now remember from our last look at Genesis a couple of weeks ago that Jacob was coming off of the awesome experience of God appearing to him at Bethel. God blessed Jacob and promised to him all of the covenant blessings previously promised to Abraham and Isaac. And then Jacob in turn vowed to worship and serve God. It seems like everything on this journey is going Jacob's way. And once he reaches his destination, the house of Laban in Haran, it seems like everything continues to go his way, at least for a short while. So Jacob, he has been on this journey, and he arrives at a well. Now this scene may sound familiar to us. It was not that long ago. We saw in Genesis chapter 24 how Abraham's servant came to the same area to seek a wife for Isaac. And it was through a providential meeting at a well that Rebekah was found, and then after all of the negotiations and arrangements, she was brought to Isaac to be his wife. Now, Jacob probably knew this story. He was close with his mother, and she probably would have told it to him at some point. She might have even given him some advice for this journey. You want to hang out by the wells at a certain time of day. That's where you'll find who you're looking for. Now, this particular well was in a field of sheep. It was covered by a large stone. That stone would have kept animals and other undesirable things, other pests, from getting into the water. And there's a group of shepherds there. Now, Jacob gets right down to business on his arrival. He asks them where they are from. They answer that they are from Haran. So far, so good. Jacob now knows he is in the right neighborhood. But he presses further, asking if they know Laban, the son of Nahor, which it turns out they do. Jacob asks them if Laban is well. It would have been quite a letdown for him to come all of this way, only to find that the person he's looking for was not well, that he was sick or that he had died. And as news traveled slow in the ancient world, it's possible that such things could happen and it could take months or years for family members at a distance to find out if they find out at all. There weren't phones. There wasn't express mail. There wasn't news reporting so that this information could get circulated. 
But Jacob does find out from these shepherds that Laban is, in fact, well. And not only that, in what appears to be a similar stroke of providence to that that Abraham's servant encountered all those years earlier, Laban had a daughter, Rachel, who was at that very moment coming to the well with the sheep. If you're Jacob, you probably think this can't be going any better. But then he does make one slight miscalculation, realizing that Rachel, who might well be the wife he has come to seek, is about to appear. He suddenly wants the other people around to go away. He wants them to leave. So his way to get this is to try to tell these other shepherds how to do their jobs. He argues that since it's the heat of the day, they should water their sheep and get them back out to pasture. The other shepherds, they're not having this. They need to have all of the sheep gathered together, including Rachel's flock, because they have to remove this big heavy stone off the well, so they only want to have to water once. So Jacob's plan of getting some solitude at this moment is thwarted. But Rachel does shortly arrive with her sheep, for we read that she was a shepherdess. Now, the fact that she was a shepherdess was a good indicator that she was not married. If she was married, she would have had the labor of caring for a husband and a home and possibly children, so she would not be available to tend her father's sheep. Now, when Rachel arrives, Jacob does something rather typical of a young man looking to impress a young woman, a feat of physical strength. He hops right up and removes that heavy stone from the top of the well and waters Rachel's flock for her. Such a nice guy. Then we see that he kisses her, even lifts up his voice and weeps. Now, it may not yet be fully clear, fully obvious what his intentions are. He does kiss her, but... It may not have necessarily been a romantic kiss, or maybe she had not necessarily seen it as so, because kissing was something done much more liberally in that day. In fact, in a few verses from now, Laban kisses Jacob upon meeting him. So it may have just been a kiss of familial greeting, though it certainly can't be lost on Jacob, given the reasons he has come there, that things with Rachel might be heading in a certain direction. Everything is going just so perfectly in Jacob's quest for a wife. He then introduces himself as Rebekah's son, and Rachel runs off to Laban to report of this visitor. It seems like at first that history is repeating itself. A man comes from out west to look for a wife, just as Abraham's servant once did. But this time things are going to go a bit differently. And this brings us to our second point. After success, we come to subversion in verses 13 through 27. Once Laban hears that his nephew has come for a visit, he gives him the red carpet treatment. He comes out, he embraces him, he kisses him, and brings him to his house as a guest. We read that Jacob told Laban all these things likely the things of who he was, his journey thus far, and his purpose for being there. And Laban seems to be fine with all of this. He receives and acknowledges Jacob as family, even as they are likely meeting for the first time. He says, surely you are my bone and my flesh. 
And then we see that Jacob stays there for a month as a guest. But while treating Jacob well at first, it seems that Laban smells opportunity. He sees a possible way to enrich himself. His able-bodied young nephew rolls into town, needing a place to stay for a while. Might as well get some work out of him. Plus, Jacob is motivated. He's now met Rachel. He wants to marry Rachel, so he'll do anything to impress his prospective father-in-law. And Laban has that most important bargaining chip, Rachel, the daughter that Jacob wants to marry. It seemed Jacob, as he did at the well that first day, he took to helping Laban. In that month as a guest, he helps Laban and proves himself capable such that Laban has incentive to keep him around. And after this month, they decide they need to discuss terms of employment. Now, it may be that given how Rachel was shepherding for Laban, he did not have any sons of his own available, so having Jacob there would have been a great help to him. And so they decide they should contract some kind of arrangement for Jacob to work for Laban. And Laban basically lets Jacob set the initial terms. But then in verse 16, we get a quick side note. We learn that Rachel has a sister, Leah. Furthermore, we learn that Rachel, the younger, was beautiful, but Leah was less so. Depending on your translations, it might say either that Leah's eyes were weak or they were delicate. Now, this is not delicate as a compliment. We don't know exactly the nature of the issue, but there was something about Leah that made her less attractive, less desirable than her younger sister. Now, also, given that she was older and unmarried in a situation where women married young, this would be a problem. This would be a predicament. Though it was a predicament that would seem to have nothing to do with Jacob. Of course it will. So back to the negotiation between Jacob and Laban in verse 18. Jacob says, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. Now Jacob, because remember, he'll do anything to impress Laban, makes a quite generous offer. Seven years for nothing but Rachel. There's several potential issues here. If they are family, why should Jacob be a wage laborer for Laban? If anything, perhaps he ought to be a partner. And another matter, if Jacob is to be treated as a common laborer, he is actually being treated as quite a cheap one. One commentator noted that a typical laborer's wage at the time would have been between a half and one shekel per month. So that meant Jacob was offering between 42 and 84 shekels worth of labor to have Rachel as his wife. Now, it was common in this time in history for there to be an exchange of money or property for a wife. It was known as a bride price. But this 42 to 84 shekels worth of labor is a high bride price. For instance, the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy 22.29 sets a maximum bride price of 50 shekels. The equivalent of Jacob's labor would have been a very high price to pay for a wife. So high that if it had happened under the Mosaic economy, it probably would have been prohibited. 
It may be that Laban is already in this taking advantage of Jacob. He knows Jacob and Rachel are young and in love, and Jacob would do anything to have her. So he leaves Jacob to name his own price, which is not a good deal for him. Jacob needs to make a good impression on Laban because Laban has the one thing that he wants. And so he offers less than he should. Laban is manipulating him. However, they arrive at the deal. Laban likes it. He says, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to another man. Stay with me. As we will find out, Laban does not wish to honor this agreement. He intends to manipulate Jacob into essentially more free labor. A more fair deal would have been for Jacob to simply pay a bride price for Rachel. And if he didn't have it on him, he could go back to his rich parents and get it from the inheritance that was already his. But Laban is looking to take advantage of Jacob's love for Rachel and his familial kindness to Laban and essentially detain him there for many years. Now, not only is this arrangement not good because it's not really fair, but it unduly delays marriage by seven years. If a couple is otherwise eligible and planning to marry, there's no good reason to wait for seven years. It's barely advisable to wait for seven months. Delayed marriage only results in the burning passions of lust and the opportunity for sin. Laban doesn't care about any of that. He's only thinking of himself and Jacob because he's so over the moon about Rachel. He'll go along with whatever Laban wants. Now, this scheming may not have been entirely unprecedented. Remember back in Genesis 24, when Rebekah was sought and found, there was an effort by Laban and others in the family to delay her departure, which the servant rejected. Maybe he smelled that there was a similar plot afoot, that if he stayed around too long, the family was going to seek some way to get a better deal. Maybe that servant sensed that Laban's house was a household of schemers and tricksters. But Jacob doesn't seem to have that insight. He is more than happy to do whatever will please Laban. In fact, we read that he serves the seven years and they seemed like nothing to him. Only a few days. That's how much he loved Rachel. So then in verse 21, we come to wedding time. Jacob fulfilled his part of the deal, and he calls on Laban to uphold his. Now, this wedding is held in the way that weddings in the ancient world were. They were big affairs. They would last multiple days. This one would last a week. It would be much food and drink. Also, in the ancient world, brides would be given to their husbands veiled, so veiled that they would not be visible or recognizable. Well, after the marrying and the feasting and the drinking, Jacob awakes the next morning to find that he is not married to Rachel, as he has labored seven years to be. Rather, he is married to Leah. Now, this is quite a problem. Given that Jacob has married Leah, they've spent their first night together. They are lawfully married. There is no going back. But this was not the one Jacob intended to marry. 
Now we also get a side note here that alongside Leah, this maid Zilpa is given and she will factor into the story later, starting next week. But Jacob comes to Laban and confronts him about this treachery. Now Laban offers this excuse. It must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Now this may have been true. It may have really been a custom of their place. But Jacob didn't seem to know this. It was never a part of their original agreement. One might think that given the terms of their agreement, that sometime in the previous seven years, if this really was the law of the land, it would have been brought up at some point. It might have even been that Laban initially met well. He figured, well, Jacob can work here for seven years, and maybe sometime in those seven years, someone else will come and marry Leah, and that'll solve the problem. But either way, that wasn't the deal Jacob and Laban had, and Laban had no business giving Leah to Jacob in marriage. It wasn't what they agreed upon, and it also shows great disregard and dishonor for his daughters. They are property. They are bargaining chips to him. They're something he can use to use and abuse and manipulate Jacob. He treats them as pawns, not as people. Now for Jacob, this is also a serious predicament. He finds himself married to a woman he did not intend to marry. Now what should he have done? We can look at what we have seen before in Genesis regarding plural marriage. It never produces good things. It produces bitterness and resentment and rivalry. While Jacob did not intend to marry Leah, he did marry Leah, and he probably should have just stayed married to Leah, and that been the end of it. Now, you might object. Well, Jacob didn't love Leah. Well, we could go through example after example in history where people married for reasons other than love and yet have fruitful and godly and even grow into loving marriages. That was not an insurmountable obstacle. Love is an act of will, and people, even if they marry for reasons other than love, can learn to love and have good marriages. But Jacob will persist in marrying Rachel, and this will create many more problems down the road. Now, God's hand is in all of this. Despite all the sin and treachery and deception in play, he will bring his purposes to pass. But it's not bad enough that Laban has done this treachery to Jacob and marrying him to the wrong daughter. He has the audacity to demand another seven years of Jacob's life and labor so that he might also marry Rachel. Now, the great irony in all of this is that Jacob, the deceiver, has now been deceived. We can feel very bad for Jacob in this situation, and rightly so. There has been a great evil, a great injustice done to him. We should also recognize that Jacob is receiving a big and bitter taste of his own medicine. What had Jacob done to Esau? Swindled him out of his birthright with a bowl of soup. Swindled him out of his blessing by deceiving Isaac. It seemed that the pervasive and prevalent sin for Jacob was deception. He was prone to lie. He was prone to defraud, to obtain what he wanted on false and unfair pretenses. 
I mentioned in previous passages how Jacob was at the bottom of a mountain climb on the way to sanctification. God will order Jacob's life in such a way that he will be made into the man God wants him to be, one who will love and serve him with his whole heart. Part of this process of sanctification for Jacob is that he is going to learn of his own pressing sins in the most humbling and horrifying and heartbreaking ways by experiencing them on the receiving end. God sent Jacob the deceiver to Laban the deceiver so that Jacob might learn not to deceive. He might learn of its evil and why that sin needed to be put to death in his own heart and in his own life. And all the things that will come after, the bitter rivalry and difficulty in Jacob's home between these two wives who are two sisters, and all the rivalry between their children and the problems that will create, it will serve as a painful and perpetual reminder of why such sins and such deceptions have no place in the house of God. So what happens now? After all of this, we come now to our final point. After the success and subversion, we come to the struggle in verses 28 through 30. So Jacob fulfills Leah's week. We are told that would be the week of the wedding, the feasting, the festivity, all of that. Now you could imagine this being a rather awkward week for Jacob and his new bride Leah as they are married They weren't supposed to be, but they were. And then it's immediately known that, oh, by the way, next week Jacob's going to marry somebody else. This shows so many problems, so many issues. It shows how little care Laban has for his own daughters. This situation cannot help but to cause problems and rivalry for them. But Laban doesn't care because he got another seven years of work out of Jacob. It also shows that Jacob cares very little for Leah. This is a problem given that they are now married. And it's a problem that will characterize the rest of their lives. For once Jacob is married to both daughters, verse 30 makes clear that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Now this is not surprising given the history But it again shows the folly and sorrow brought by plural marriage. No man can equally and effectively love two wives. This is all doomed to failure from the start. And then throw on top of this Jacob's debt to serve Laban another seven years, a debt which Laban had no right to levy, but Jacob goes along with anyway. This would likely only stir more resentment in his heart towards Leah. This resentment will boil over in much of the ugliness in the coming passages. And it's not clear in this text if Leah wanted or willingly participated in any of this. It seems that perhaps her only crime here was being caught between a greedy father and an unloving husband. Now God is aware and working in this too. We'll see more of this in the passages to come. We'll even see how in many ways Leah demonstrates a certain piety, a certain faithfulness to God that perhaps even her younger sister lacks. But once again, as we've often seen in Genesis, in the family of faith, we see a horrible and sinful situation. 
Now, this time, Jacob didn't cause it. He did play his part in certain ways by allowing himself to be manipulated by Laban, by deciding to take multiple wives rather than honoring and cherishing the wife he had. But what's done is done. And yet, despite all of this sin, all of this deception, all of the awful things that have gone into this story that we have read here today, it is from this family, it is from these people, this man and his wives, that will come God's covenant purposes. It is from them that will come, it was from Jacob and his wives will come the people of God. The nation of Israel, the people of the covenant through whom redemption in Christ will one day come. What do we make of that? God saves sinners. God uses sinners. Even in this huge mess, this web of evil and deception and all these awful people doing awful things in the houses of Laban and Jacob, God is working out his purposes for redemption, for his glory, and for the salvation of his people. It may look like we're a long way from that. We're seeing only the bad and only the evil and only the difficulty. But make no mistake, God's work and God's word are sure. All those covenant promises that God has made to Jacob, he will bring them to pass even despite this huge mess on the ground and this huge mess in his family. So, perhaps you're here today and you hear this story, this history, these events that happened in the history of God's people, and it resonates with you not in a good way, but perhaps you relate to the sins that are brought forth in this passage. Maybe you are a deceiver. Maybe you've taken advantage of people. You've done evil to people, even those you love, even your family, those who you're most supposed to cherish and care for. This text is a clear warning against such folly and sin. If that is you, the call is to repent of your sins and flee to Christ for forgiveness and life. Perhaps you're here today and you've been on the other side of this. You've been on the receiving end of such sin and treachery. Well, know that God sees and knows and that he ultimately will set all things right and that even your struggles and sorrows and hardships, he will work ultimately for your good and for his glory. Just as he uses this situation with Jacob and the trouble in his family ultimately for our good and his glory, because it is through this family that Christ comes, who does set all things right. See, we are all unworthy sinners deserving nothing but death and condemnation. We're no better than Jacob. We're no better than Laban. I mean, we can look down our noses at the particulars of this story, but we are all as guilty of sin and as deserving of death as they were. And yet Christ died to save sinners. And those who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus receive forgiveness of sins, even these sins of fraud and deception that we've seen here, and they receive righteousness and everlasting life. 
And so may all who hear today believe and trust in Christ and love and serve him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us, even as it is, it is a word of difficult things, of a sorrowful history in the people of God, where there is so much sin and wrong and deception and evil. And yet still we see in it your covenant faithfulness, your love for your people, and how you turn the worst of situations for your people's good and for your own glory and towards your purposes of redemption in Christ. I pray that all here gathered would have faith in Christ as a gift of you and worked by your Holy Spirit. And I pray that we would all love and serve you and others as you have called us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.